Hello, I'm Michaela Maguire, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast recorded live at Carriageworks at the 2018 festival. <laughs> Hi. Um, they did tell me a second one was coming, but I thought it just took a little bit long. And we've got so much to say. And what a great turnout. Thank you very much. Welcome to this session um, with Jennifer Egan. Uh, the fact that you've all turned out, realize that I, I realise that she's not just my favourite author. She's obviously many of yours too. Um, won the Pulitzer Prize, of course, in 2011 with her fabulous A Visit from the Goon Squad. And the, we are here particularly tonight that we will be touching on many things uh, to discuss Manhattan Beach, which is the book which she published last year. Um, an extraordinary work set in, set in Brooklyn during the time of uh, running from the Depression to the Second World War, but we all get to all that. I'd like you first to welcome Jennifer Egan. It is an extraordinary book, and, and Jenny? Yeah. Jenny is going, to, uh, is going to be reading from us shortly because I just think it's really important for those who haven't yet enjoyed it uh, to get a sense of the tone. It's very different um, from the previous book. And also just for the sheer pleasure, if you have read it, of hearing it again. It's got a wonderful opening. But just before we do that, Jenny, I was wondering, what was so intriguing to me was that this book was actually started long before a visit from the Goon Squad. So... What happened? What put you off your stride? Well, it, in a way, it was started in the sense that I was sort of meditating on the time and the place, which is really my portal into fiction. But I hadn't put pen to paper until 2012. So around 2005, I was thinking I wanted to write a book set in New York during World War II, whatever that meant. I knew very little about it. So, so why? You know, that's one of those things that I don't... I can try to understand it later, and in trying to understand it later, I have come to feel that probably 9-11 was the reason, because, you know, I was living in New York at the time and now, and the city was transformed, you know, not even overnight. In the course of one day, it went from being the place we all knew to being a war zone, and it was very shocking. And, you know, there's, there's no collective memory of that left in America. So it was just a reminder of how suddenly everything can be transformed. And I guess it led me to think about what the city had felt like during the war, I think. Um, and then I, I began by looking at images of New York during World War II, and what was so striking was that the water seemed to be, there was, the waterfront was part of almost every picture. It was almost as if showing the city without those edges was incomplete. And that was a really striking contrast to life in the city now, where the water is lovely and you can take a ride on the circle line if you visit. Um, and we all like to jog along the waterfront, but it, there's no commerce happening there and very little travel, um, you know, human transport. So I, I, in a certain way, I kind of followed the water into various realms of the book. And I was doing that first while finishing The Keep and then while working on A Visit oh, from the Goon Squad. you working on The Keep? Yeah. It didn't, that came out in 2006. It's a long gestation. It, I mean, let's put it this way. When I was reading a collection of letters at the Brooklyn Historical Society between two people who had worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, who had met there and married, um, I was doing that because the Brooklyn Historical Society was right near the preschool that my two-year-old son was going to. He's now taller than I am and has a deep voice. So <laughs> some, some serious years passed in there. <laughs> 
Listen, I think that you're referencing water, and, and that is actually... It runs through the novel, a bit the way that time runs through Goon Squad. It is kind of this, this um, medium that you run through, and it, it is also appropriate because, in fact, that is how you open the book, on the water, on this place called Manhattan Beach. Would you like to read just a small amount? Sure. I'm going to set it up just a teeny bit, although we're only on page seven. Um, Manhattan Beach is... Connect is basically the same piece of shore as Coney Island, for any of you who have been to New York. Um, this uh, particular section takes place in 1934, and a girl named Anna has gone with her father to visit a man named Dexter Stiles, who lives in a very fancy house on this beach. Um, she has some sense that her father is working with Dexter Stiles in some way. Uh, she feels that her father is afraid of Dexter Stiles, and she understands that her job is to play with Dexter Stiles' children um, and sort of play that part while her father does whatever he needs to do with Dexter Stiles. We haven't seen um, Dexter Stiles yet. Anna's on the beach with his child, whose name is Tabitha. People call her Tabby. Your shoes are getting wet, Tabby said through chattering teeth. Should we take them off, Anna asked, to feel the cold? Uh, by the way, it's winter, should have mentioned that. I don't want to feel it. I do. Tabby watched Anna unbuckle the straps of the black patent leather shoes she shared with Zara Klein downstairs. She unrolled her wool stockings and placed her white, bony, long-for-her-age feet in the icy water. Each foot delivered an agony of sensation to her heart, one part of which was a flame of ache that felt unexpectedly pleasant. What's it like, Tabby shrieked. Cold, Anna said, awful, awful cold. It took all of her strength to keep from recoiling, and her resistance added to the odd excitement. Glancing toward the house, she saw two men in dark overcoats following the paved path set back from the sand. Holding their hats in the wind, they looked like actors in a silent picture. Are those our papas? Daddy likes to have business talks outdoors, Tabby said, away from prying ears. Anna felt benevolent compassion toward young Tabitha, excluded from her father's business affairs when Anna was allowed to listen in whenever she pleased. She heard little of interest. Her father's job was to pass greetings, or good wishes, between union men and other men who were their friends. These salutations included an envelope, sometimes a package, that he would deliver or receive casually. You wouldn't notice unless you were paying attention. Over the years, he'd talked to Anna a great deal without knowing he was talking, and she had listened without knowing what she heard. She was surprised by the familiar animated way her father was speaking to Mr. Stiles. Apparently, they were friends after all that. The men changed course and began crossing the sand toward Anna and Tabby. Anna stepped hurriedly out of the water, but she'd left her shoes too far away to put them back on in time. Mr. Stiles was a broad, imposing man with brilliantined black hair showing under his hat brim. Say, is this your daughter, he asked, withstanding Arctic temperatures without so much as a pair of stockings? Anna sensed her father's displeasure. So it is, he said. Anna, say good day to Mr. Stiles. Very pleased to meet you, she said, shaking his hand firmly as her father had taught her. 
Mr. Stiles looked younger than her father without shadows or creases in his face. She sensed an alertness about him, a humming tension, perceptible even through his billowing overcoat. He seemed to await something to react to or be amused by. Right now, that something was Anna. Mr. Stiles crouched beside her in the sand and looked directly into her face. Why the bare feet, he asked. Don't you feel the cold or are you showing off? Anna had no ready answer. It was neither of those, more an instinct to keep Tabby awed and guessing. But even that she couldn't articulate. Why would I show off, she said. I'm nearly 12. <laughs> well, what's it feel like? She smelled mint and liquor on his breath, even in the wind. It struck her that her father couldn't hear their conversation. It only hurts at first, she said. After a while, you can't feel anything. Mr. Stiles grinned as if her reply were a ball he'd taken physical pleasure in catching. Words to live by, he said, then rose again to his immense height. She's strong, he remarked to Anna's father. So she is. Her father avoided her eyes. Mr. Stiles brushed sand from his trousers and turned to go. He'd exhausted that moment and was looking for the next. They're stronger than we are, Anna heard him say to her father. Lucky for us, they don't know it. She thought he might turn and look back at her, but he must have forgotten. Thank you. It is... I mean, in my opinion, it's one of the great openings because it has these elements of it's, it's magical and the beauty of the shore and this um, winter day. It is a strong sense of unease. You know there is something really wrong just happened or about to happen. Um, and it also, of course, is functional because it introduces the three main characters, Dexter Stiles, Eddie Carrigan and Anna, who is, who is at the heart of this book. And I guess it, it then sort of moves forward and, and we see... Um, Anna is a 19-year-old, but before we get to that, the very fact that it moves forward in order has been <laughs> remarked upon, because for those, you know, you are, um, what, what do they say in school, non-linear, you are known as a non-linear writer, <laughs> I mean, you are very experimental, very daring, and certainly Goon Squad was that, for which you won the Pulitzer, as I mentioned. So, um, was this a conscious thing that you decided, I am going to have a book that proceeds in the appropriate order of timeline, or is it just came out that way? No, in fact, I did not plan that. Um, and, and I should also mention that Goon Squad had a different order than the one it has now as I was working on it. I really thought it would be chronological, but I thought the chronology would be backward. So it was only when I read that, when I read the, the parts in that order fairly late in the process and discovered that it didn't gain any strength being structured that way, I kind of frantically asked myself if there was some way to, if, if the reason that the book seemed to have no power, which is not really what you're hoping for when you've been working on something for several years, whether part of the reason for that was that I was undermining the, the, the tension or the momentum in adhering to this backward structure. Um, and I found that I was, and that if I ordered things differently, I could, I could create a lot more surprises and, and little satisfactions and payoffs for the reader than I could do sticking to chronology. And were they, were they always still narrated by different characters in Goonville? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was just about the order. And, yeah. It was just about... But I wasn't throwing up in the air because it was, in fact, a very careful calibration about how can I wring the maximum 
power and effect out of this material. So that was a case where I thought it would be linear, and it turned out that didn't really work. In this case, I thought it would be nonlinear, <laughs> um, because I thought, well, this is a book, you know, I'm setting this book in the past, but we all know that it's not that time anymore. So surely I'm going to come up with some wild and crazy way to play with that fact. Um, and in fact, I even thought that 9-11 might be in the book. So that really shows you how far I was from the result. Um, but what I found, I have a writing group that I, go, that I rely on very heavily um, throughout my writing process, but especially early on in a project, I'll bring in material just to kind of find out if it feels alive. Um, just sort of it's whether like it's a test audience, is it? Well, it, not really. I mean, it, we're, it's a you know, it's it's a writing group. I mean, we all read work, and but I mean, in a certain way, yes. In that, I, I'll I want to find out sort of if the work feels like it has a voice, if it has a pulse, really. And we only read aloud, so often that question is answered even before people say anything, because it's amazing how much you can tell just by feeling the room. Uh, mm -hmm. can, it can be work for me and against me, uh, depending on what I've brought in. But what I found was that whenever I made leaps in time, which is what I had imagined I would be doing with a, a more a, a sort of present-day point of view, that um, would create an understanding with the reader that we were agreeing together to go into the past, but obviously that, that time was long gone, and almost a kind of winking collusion between narrator and reader. Every time I tried to do any of that, it was really unsuccessful. Um, and the, my, my colleagues in my writing group ultimately reached a point of being sort of angry with me because they said, why do you keep doing this? We hate it. Um, Did they really? Well, yeah, they were really frustrated because they kept saying, we don't, really don't like it when you do that. And then I would come back two weeks later and I'd still be doing it. And so they kind of ran out of patience. <laughs> and so I realized, and I could feel it too. I, I sort of felt that it, it seemed, the material seemed to sort of go dead in my hands when I would when I would break the illusion of simply being in the past. And I think I felt this kind of, I didn't want to be disingenuous, and I kept feeling like, well, it's kind of dishonest to just write as if it were the past. Don't I have to acknowledge the fact that I recognize that it is no longer 1934 or 1942? And, and so that kept troubling me, even after I had given up on the idea of leaping in and out of past and present. But what I began to realize is that I, that there was no need to keep calling attention to the fact that these events happened at an earlier time, mm -hmm. that in a way the, the reader's awareness of it and my awareness of it are always there. It's, like, it's almost like an allegorical subtext. Um, and so I, I found that that was actually much more interesting to me than winking and, and leaping. Somehow mm. just letting that layer of awareness of what's happened between then and now float in all of our minds seemed actually much more interesting. Um, and so, and the other thing I kind of realized is that the events of this book are very different from the events of Goon Squad. A lot of the big action in A Visit from the Goon Squad actually happens off stage. I don't dramatize it. And so fragmentation works a lot better when you're dealing with action that's off stage. But the events of Manhattan Beach are old-fashioned adventure story kinds of events. You know, shipwreck, survival at sea, 
more than one murder. And I found that fragmentation was a really poor device to try to deal with those extremes. It was almost as if dealing with extremes of action required that I let go of extremes of structure and just give us those big scenes. And it was really fun once I, once I kind of gave myself over to it. I was just thinking, because I remember writing down when it was the, 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 linea, the linear, you say this is, is or you said, uh, is the scourge of writing prose. So it must have gone against your grain. I mean, what you're saying is you found the solution for the, um, for the book but you were having to use the method that you had really rather spat on. Well, no, I, but that, I think maybe I'm, I didn't express myself well in that quote because there's nothing methodological about the linearity of prose. Prose is simply linear. Mm. <laughs> you write one word after another. And so what I meant, I think, when I said that, I'm not quite sure what the context is, is that there's always a kind of tension in creating narrative between the essential linearity of, of writing sentences and the simultaneity of perception and the, and the incredible complicated nature of experience. So we're trying to suggest all of this simultaneity and complexity using this very linear form. So there's always a tension. And if you think about modernism and what you know, people like Virginia Woolf and Joyce were doing, it seems to me that one of the things they were doing was, try, was, was explicitly working on that problem and trying to create a sense of simultaneity that defied the linearity of... Of a book. Of, a, of, of, a, of you know, prose. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so, but in the end, this is a much more linear story, but it let me tell a kind of story that I couldn't have told using fragmentation. One of the reasons you said you wanted to write this story, because it's very much the story of Anna Kerrigan, um, and we'll come back to that, and her relationship to her father, I think, which is a really powerful, powerful element in the story. Um, but you said you wanted to write about female power which just shows the prescience of this particular festival, I would have to say, <laughs> and the appropriateness for one of your, the, the stars. But um, why did you want to write Female Power? You also said that you thought that some of the books you'd written had, had verged into, into male territory. What does that mean? Very specifically that I've spent a lot of time writing from a male point of view. I mean, I, The Keep is almost entirely from a male point of view. Um, a Visit from the Goon Squad... But there is that wicked woman in the, in the tower. But we never see it from her point of view. True. Um, so, and at Visit from the Goon Squad, I struggled to keep it 50-50, but I kept veering into the male, and it was only when I added the PowerPoint chapter at the very last minute, which is from a female point of view, that I managed to achieve 50-50. So I lean toward a male point of view. I think the reason I do that is that I don't like writing about myself, um, and I do it very poorly, even if I did like it, I probably wouldn't even do it. Um, don't like to write about people I know, and I'm always looking for ways to separate the world that I'm writing about from my own life. So I have a tremendous sense of excitement going into a male point of view because it feels like I'm being delivered out of me. But at the same time, I am a, a woman and I have many things um, that I wanted to explore about being female. And I had found myself thinking over the last couple of books, you know, I really need to get to a, a point wh where I find material that feels like the right um, milieu in which to explore femininity, per se. And was that that made you want to focus on writing about a female character? Was that the times, or it was just 
the turn. You mean why did I why did this book feel like the right one? I think, you know, as I said, I start with time and place. So I I wasn't thinking about fem femininity initially, but as soon as I started following the water, um, and the, my first stop was the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is about seven blocks from where I live, um, we're at the height of, well, first of all, it was the largest builder and repairer of allied ships in the world during the war, which I had had no idea of. It repaired 5,000 allied ships and built 17 battleships. So um, there were, at the height of the war, there were about 70,000 people working there. A lot of people. Mm. <laughs> um, of it was whom, a world unto its own, wasn't it? It is. It's 225 acres. It's very large. Um, of whom almost 5,000 were women. So that immediately evoked a, a narrative that I had certainly read in history books, um, but didn't feel much personal conne connection to, which was opportunities opened for women during the war. They did things they'd been told they couldn't do. Then, when the war ended, those opportunities were taken away, and all of it came back, you know, with a roar during the women's movement in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So I sort of knew all that, but it didn't really mean much. But as soon as I found myself thinking about the Brooklyn Navy Yard and those nearly 5,000 women, I thought, wow, <laughs> let's, yes. let's go there. Well, also, I mean, <laughs> they, they, they were told they too could be Rosie the Riveter, exactly. And then they, as soon as the war didn't need them anymore, they were sent home? What were they meant to do? Well, it's interesting because I, one thing that was so nice about the fact that I got started with some of this research so long before I started writing is that um, there were, it was even more in living memory than, than that time is now. So I got involved in an oral history project with the Brooklyn Navy Yard and the Brooklyn Historical Society. The Brooklyn Historical Society is the one that's near the preschool where I was reading these letters. And so our goal was to interview every person we could find who had worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard or had knowledge of it. And so um, we, I was present for interviews with maybe 20 women who had worked there. They were in their mid to late 80s at that point. So I'm so glad we didn't wait because there really wasn't much time. Um, and so I heard amazing stories that made that narrative much more visceral. One in particular, um, a woman named Ida who was a welder and she was very slight. Um, which was a big advantage in working on ships because she could kind of slither into narrow spaces and she talked passionately and kind of sensually about welding even all those years later. I and mean, she was a really good welder and she was proud. And she actually achieved seniority as a welder. Um, and so when the women were all fired even before the war ended um, and Ida was working class and needed to work, and I think she had worked for the telephone company maybe before, so she thought, well, no more of that. I'm now a welder, and that's what I'm going to be doing. So she started applying for welding jobs, and she was treated with contempt and actually laughed at by men for the very notion that she would be allowed to do this work, which she had been doing six months earlier and doing at a very high level. So you know, talk about a whiplash. Yes. So those, those, I mean, hearing those stories from the very women who experienced them was pretty great. And you wouldn't think necessarily, I mentioned there were three characters, which is you know, Anna and her father and Dexter, the mysterious and rather charismatic and not entirely wholesome Dexter Styles. Um, but in fact, the Brooklyn Naval Yards is, I'd have to say, the fourth. I spent Christmas in um, New York, in Brooklyn this year. And, and 
I would never have shown any interest before, but since reading Manhattan Beach, I was trying to look through the fence to go and see the naval yards because it, you made it so attractive. And it was here that Anna Kerrigan, at 19, went and she conceived a plan that, a bit like your, your um, real woman welder, she wanted to become the first female diver. Explain why you chose that and, and how, why that's important, because it is, again, it fits with this water which runs right through the book. Well, the word chose never feels quite right, just because I, I, my whole writing process is geared toward moving out of the realm of choice and into the realm of instinct. And the reason for that is that my choices are actually kind of lousy. So I'm trying to get kind of under my conscious mind, which it turns out it comes up with pretty dull ideas. So I have to kind of, I have to outwit it. I have to get away from it. It's very useful as an editing tool, but not as a creative tool. So I write by hand, and, and, and I write kind of without knowing what I'm writing, as if I, I so sort of... Sounds like quite surreal. I mean, that you're part of that movement, can, automatic writing. It, well, it can feel that way, but it's not like I'm just writing gibberish. I'm, I'm entering a scene as if I were reading it, and I'm watching events unfold, hopefully just a half second ahead of my knowing what's coming. But I'm, another part of all this is I've grown very... Um, aware of a certain kind of excitement that I'll feel about certain things ahead of time that, that give me a feeling that they're going to play an important role in my fiction. So the waterfront was what was probably the first realm that gave me that feeling, then the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And then I learned in, my, in researching the Brooklyn Navy Yard that there were a lot of civilian divers there and that diving was a part of ship repair. I had had no idea. And when I saw a picture of this civilian diver who was a man with his Mark V diving apparatus, I had that feeling, this sort of excitement, and I, I became fixated on diving. Now, I've never even scuba dived. I've had no interest in diving in my life, but suddenly it felt really exciting. Des describe what happens when you, when you know that you're right, the subcutaneous, what happens? Well, I don't Is really it know. Or well, it's just, a it's just a kind of uh, quickening that as if, um, I mean, I, it's hard to, you know, I have a, a good dream that I've had repeatedly through my life, which is that I'm in a familiar place, like an apartment or a house, and suddenly I find extra rooms there. I sort of push through a wall, wow. and I think, oh, wow, and sometimes they're huge. They're like Versailles, and I, I'll, I'll actually sort of think, can I really, like, live here? I mean, can I occupy this space? And then other times it'll just be, like, a small room and a garden, but it always feels like such a thrilling discovery. So you're like you're pushing through yeah. a wall. And so I think that, that quickening that I have about certain realms, is it feels a little like that dreamlike feeling that if I push, I'll get somewhere else. And in a way, one test of whether something is really going to lead somewhere is how interested in it am I really? Because while the idea of diving is sort of exciting, reading 300-page manuals from 1934 about diving equipment might not be interesting to everyone, and yet I could read them on the elliptical machine and feel enthralled, which was a sign that there was something about this that was of interest. Um, anyway, so, so that was, so I, I, I had that feeling about diving and began taking various steps to learn more about diving. 
And I guess I, but even then, I'm not sure if I knew my diver was female, whether those elements really came together until the act of writing, which is why I wouldn't say that I chose it exactly. It's, it's interesting because I've, I've, I've read you say before that you are surprised that when you start a book, you don't know the way it's going to turn out. I mean, you don't even, not just the ending, you don't know the way it's going no. to progress. And I hadn't understood why, but what do you think? Is it to do with that, that instinctual, that sort of quickening and that you just... Yeah, I'm I mean, but there are many wrong moves. I don't want to make it sound like I just sit down and, you know, the muses sing and a beautiful thing results. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the price I pay for attending to instinct in this way is that my first drafts are unspeakable. I mean, they're just a total mess. Because there are days where nothing happens, and I'm just trying to fill up my five to seven pages. So then what that amounts to later is long stretches of just nothing. Um, mm. but, but it's worth it, because what I'm hoping for are, are, the, are enough moves that feel right that I can later sort of assemble them and shape them, and then I create very detailed outlines once I have a first draft, and try to improve them over time into something that is going to be better than anything I could have come up with sitting down and making an outline of like, gee, what should happen in a book? I wouldn't even know how to do that, actually. Mm. Because my, honestly, my ideas are not good enough. Thank God for your writing group, hey? <laughs> Thank God for the unconscious. It's a lot smarter than I am. Um, you, I, was, I was wondering, let's talk a bit about the, the character of Anna. Because it's, what she does is... is uh, to become a diver and she falls in love with the experience of being underwater and we can return to that if you want but I think what she is is a daughter and and I personally found the the uh, relationship she had with her father was the thing that was that totally filled me uh, from the book I mean I, it made I cried at the end it was it was extremely powerful and I, I I'd like to talk a little bit about that and how much I mean the father-daughter bond is that something that was interesting to you before or is this one of these things you just started when when you were through the book well it's interesting I think that falls into the category of writing about myself without meaning to. <laughs> so I did not know that it was about, it was a father-daughter story, and it's lucky that I didn't, because I wouldn't have wanted to write that. Why? Um, oh, because it's... Well, I, because I, in certain ways, I didn't really know my father. Um, I mean, I, uh, let's see, my, my mother and father divorced, or rather their marriage was annulled when I was two. Um, and difficult to get a marriage annulled when, you've, <laughs> when you have a two-year-old, but, um, but it worked because my, father, my, my father's father was a police commander and sort of chummy with the, uh, with the church hierarchy in Chicago, <laughs> so I think that's how it happened. Irish family? Irish-American, mm -hmm. very much so. So anyway, my, I, my mother and father were divorced when I was very young, and while we all lived in Chicago, I had a... Uh, maybe, I guess I had about five years of seeing quite a bit of my father, and we spent every Sunday together. We would go to church, because my mother was not Catholic, um, and then we would spend the rest of the day together, and I, I have very strong memories of that time, and, you know, I think I drew a lot on that. I mean, even in that little section I read to you, yes. the father talking to Anna without knowing he was talking, and her listening without knowing she was listening, that feels very immediate to me. 
Um, there, uh, one of the things my father and I would talk about was a terrible tragedy that had happened in his family, which was that his younger brother, Eddie, <laughs> which is the name I gave to Anna's father, um, was killed in a uh, motorcycle accident at like 16. And it was just a disaster, as you can imagine, a horrible disaster for the family. And they dealt with it in a, in a stereotypically Irish-American way, um, not a very healthy way, which was essentially that they never mentioned him again, if you can imagine. So my poor father and his, there was a younger, there was a youngest brother, both of them became, you know, serious alcoholics and ultimately recovered, which is great. But it was a, a very painful thing. My father and I would talk about Eddie all the time. Now, I'm not sure who drove that. It may have been me. Um, but we would talk specifically about the other person on the motorcycle and what his injuries had been because he had lived. Um, so things like that. But then when I moved to San Francisco with my mother and stepfather, I sort of stopped knowing my father in a like way. Like Emma, you lost your father. Yeah, I kind of lost him. So my books have a lot of missing fathers in them. And one thing that bothered me, I mean, for example, Goon Squad has a missing father. Sasha's father literally has disappeared. Um, as I began this, I thought, oh man, here we got another book with a missing father. Because it's not giving too much away to say that Eddie disappears um, a few years after the scene that, we, that I was reading. Um, but it turned out Mysteriously. that... Yeah. Mysteriously. Well, yeah, he's, he appears to have abandoned the family, but who knows. Um, so I... But it seemed that actually this time it wasn't going to be as simple as the father is, disappears from the narrative. We were actually going to learn a lot more about him, and that became clear to me as I worked. And it was actually kind of a pleasure to get in there and explore this relationship more rather than just kind of creating a big gap where there would be a father. But here's the really funny thing. So as I was first writing this, my kids were still uh, you know, younger. They're now 17 and 15. As I was working on the book, the older one sort of became an adolescent, stopped wanting to go to the zoo, you know, and spending every moment with his mother. Um, and I was horrified. I thought, Wait, I, I, it was as if I had been cheated. I thought, but don't I get to like cuddle with you forever and have you in my lap? Um, and I, I really had a hard time making that transition. And it was, it was actually agony. And I, I found myself thinking, this is what Anna's father is going through. So it was as if I had finally understood what the book was about because somehow the book was a little ahead of me chronologically. But it's very much about the pain of letting your children grow up, I think. Yes, it is. It is, but also about her pain um, in the absence yeah. of, a, of an unexplained absence. Because it, I mean, I think that actually, you can argue forever which is more important, but I think the father-daughter relationship is an incredibly important one. And she was so. a bit of a lost, she's a lost figure. Even as she's diving deep in her, in her 200 pound suit, she's still a bit lost. Yeah, I think so. What did you, what were your thoughts about Dexter Styles, who's the other, you know, really, he, uh, he hypnotized me, that Dexter Styles. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I didn't have many thoughts about him, again, because I sort of arrived at him in, a, in a, the same instinctive way that I did all of them. I mean, I, when I sat down and started working on the book, I wrote the scene I read just now and everything around it 
Probably all of the words were different and not as good, but the basic moves were there right from the start. Um, and I, I guess I, as I was doing my research, I had a sense of a, I wanted, another thing about waterfront life that became very obvious very quickly is that it was permeated with crime. And so I realized that, that crime and criminal activity were going to be a big part of this book, which I was delighted about because I had, I mean, first of all, why not, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a cop's granddaughter. Um, in fact, you wanted to be a cop. So I did want to be a cop. That's true. Um, until, you can only take the police exam until the age of 35 in New York, and every year my husband and I would have an argument about it. <laughs> he was so relieved when I finally turned 35 and hadn't done it. <laughs> I just thought, I kept saying, but I'll just, I'll just go to the police academy. I won't actually become a cop. And he said, I know you. You're going to end up a cop if you go to the police academy. But anyway, so I like the idea of having crime in the book because I had always thought I would use a kind of noir lens through which to look at New York during World War II. And, you know, the, the kind of shadowy urban quality of the noir as a genre has always really interested me. Um, and so as I began to feel that, that crime would play an important role, I had a sort of intimation of a, of a, of a guy, of a sort of crime figure who would be part of the story. And that was really all I knew of Dexter Stiles until I started writing. I, I was pretty beguiled by him myself um, and happy to, to, to have him arrive on the scene. Um, and, uh, and he was just a pleasure to write, yeah. I have to say. I mean, I, must, I think that whole section where we're in the, on the waterfront, uh, it, it, which it does remind me a bit of that, of that Brando film. And well, it should, because on the waterfront, the film is derived from a series of newspaper exposés it's, it is di taken directly from nonfiction written about the corrupt Irish waterfront in a New York newspaper. So there, it is exactly the world that I'm writing about. In On the Waterfront, they sort of clouded the ethnicity. They pulled back on the Irish-American element. Um, and, and that was totally reasonable because the same sort of thing happened in, another, in the Brooklyn docks, which were controlled by the Italian um, sort of criminal world, exactly the same kind of exploitation of the workers went on. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, On the Waterfront was very much derived from these exposés of, of corruption on the Irish waterfront. You were saying that, that at some point the inspiration was 9-11 was or that, that had been in your thought at, at one phase um, and obviously outgrew that. But I, I wondered, do you feel kind of relieved that you got this book done and dusted before the last year, before the election of Donald Trump? Because if the, if the influence of 9-11 was so great that it actually permeated a work some years later, I mean, can you write about America today without writing about Trump? Um, well, I mean, I felt really glad that I was working on a book that wasn't set in contemporary times because it's always a problem if you have basically finished a book that's contemporary that fails to account for some major move in contemporary life. I mean, with my novel Look at Me, which came out the week of 9-11, I had a similar relief because I had a, basically a, a terrorist in that book who specifically fantasizes about blowing up the World Trade Center. And I thought, I mean, if, the, if, I, if I had, say, been halfway through it, 
when 9-11 happened, I would have had to completely reconceive it in light of those events. So I felt lucky not to have to do that because that can be really hard to do, especially writing the way I do, relying so much on instinct. It's not easy to start shifting things around because of external pressures. That is very hard for me to do. Um, so, uh, but the thing is that even as the election was happening, I felt very happy to kind of escape into my world. But I will tell you that I was very struck by certain resonances. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, one thing that I, I've always been fascinated by, the, the aspect of, of American, the American psyche, let's say, that is about self-reinvention. So, for example, The Great Gatsby is a kind of the exemplar of that in, in literature, it's in, in American letters, let's say. The, the, the self-created person who takes on a new identity and becomes who he wants to be, at least briefly, he or she. Um, and so, but what, I've, what I found myself thinking a lot more as I worked on Manhattan Beach was just the, the, de the violence that really is at the heart also of the American psyche. Um, you know, it began with obliterating the Native American populations who lived on the land that we now occupy, and it continued with a lot of very brutal criminality that intersected with government, with law enforcement. I mean, there's, there's just a tremendous amount of violence mm -hmm. at, at the heart of our culture. I, I really feel that. The frontier and could not have been a more violent place. So violent. And, and, you know, people, I mean, Cormac McCarthy captures that beautifully mm -hmm. in Blood Meridian. It's hard to read, but it's, it's there. So I had been ruminating on that already, the kind of thuggishness that is a, a, a legitimate strain in, in American life. Dexter Stiles is, is really of that. He knows it himself, and there's a moment where he has a kind of revelation, which is that he feels his sort of connection to American life. He feels a sense of that he has done something important that is part of American life um, in being who he is. And so watching Donald Trump win and take office felt like watching that strand of American psyche um, predominate uh, in, in the White House. And so it was frightening, but it didn't feel unfamiliar to me. So you made Dexter Styles actually really quite charming. <laughs> well, there's opposed. the difference. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, while we're on political matters, you, you actually have just been appointed the head of PEN America. If you could explain a bit just where your work will take you and um, why it is important to your mind. Well, I mean, uh, PEN America is kind of a fascinating organisation. It has existed almost 100 years and its vision has always been to try to overcome differences of, of um, thought and politics and geography through the love and practice of the literary arts. Um, and, and, and the idea was that to celebrate literature and protect the freedoms that allow it to be written. But with respect, it's normally, I mean, we've all, I think, been to a writer's festival somewhere where we had the empty chair where someone has been silenced in Sierra Leone or in, in, in Philippines or wherever it is. Um, I mean, one doesn't think so much of America 
American writers needing that form of protection, do they? Uh, but, but Penn has always been an internationally focused organization. So, for example, there, there I believe, have been 42 writers that we have actively campaigned um, to uh, against the imprisonment of in our history, and 38 of them have been released, the 38th fairly recently. So there's always, Penn exists as an international organization of which Penn America is one kind of very active part. And so it is, uh, in a way, a welcome corner of American life, uh, American cultural life that actually looks at the world, which is something that I think that many of us would say we need to do more of. We don't translate very much compared to other countries. Um, so there's, you know, that's an important part of what Penn does. It also has a very, a, a very kind of active prison writing program that is all about trying to allow prisoners to also do their own writing and to bring that writing into the world. Um, and it does, you know, many other things as well. So which is the bit that, I mean, obviously, for someone who guards their time, who, who, who is instinctual, I mean, you're giving away something really important by giving your time to Penn. What was the thing that most said, I'll, I'll do this, I'm going to stand up? I think it probably was Donald Trump in a way, because um, one thing that's exciting about Penn is that it, it has an infrastructure already very... Um, agile and well-equipped to deal with the, ki the, the kinds of attempts he has made to silence the press, threaten the press, undermine the press, and basically just question the reality of anything the press writes that he doesn't like. Um, Penn is, is very, uh, very well-positioned and well-qualified to call out those um, those incursions and respond to them. So it felt like a, a, a good moment to be involved. And also just, you know, I, I don't teach. I don't have, I'm lucky enough not to have a day job at the moment. And I just feel like there, there, there comes a moment when you have to do some community service. And this felt like a really good place to do it. And you can't, you're too old to become a police captain. Exactly. <laughs> I can't take the exam. I gotta get, I gotta get busy doing something. <laughs> um, we will be opening up Four questions. Um, so, and I think there's a microphone there. There's one there. There'll be some um, behind, actually, that monitor, which I can't quite see yet. Um, but before we do that, I, I want I want to do a couple of quick, quick questions, like a game. Do you play games? Um, I do play games. Which yes. games? Yes, I have my. Uh, well, we, I've played lots of games with my kids, and my younger kid is a real gamer. Um, he's very interested in Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games and, uh, you know, card games. And I'm actually fascinated by role-playing games, and I, I'm very curious about trying to find a way to work with that in my fiction. I, I, that's just a wish. I haven't found a way to do it. Um, but to yeah. how to use a, a role-playing game yeah, some as of the, the kind of, of plot. I think what is specifically interests me about things like Dungeons and Dragons, which I've never really played, is the quantification of character. You sort of make a character by rolling a dice, and determining based on the result how, how, how strong or weak a character is in certain different areas. And that amounts to a kind of personality. That's sort of fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I, I, having kids has been great for, for you know, sort of forcing me into areas that I knew nothing about and, um, and bringing me up to speed. And, and so game playing is something I'm very interested in and also really enjoy. Okay, well this is a very, very primitive parlor game. Okay, we've got three questions. All right. Um, and have a think about your questions if you'd like. Um, here's three questions. What are, can you name a couple of books that you have absolutely loved that you've read in the last 12 months? 
They're going to be 19th century. I hope that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> You've read them? Um, well, I'm, I've gotten, I'm really into Trollope, um, and uh, I find that the deeper I go with Trollope, the more Trollope I want to read. I think he's sort of like golf. I just sort of can't get enough. Um, I, let's see, I loved a book of his that I think is, well, he's little read generally in America, but The Eustace Diamonds, which is a, a kind of interestingly feminist book. There's a, a, a really difficult almost monstrous female at the, at the heart of it who's very selfish and conniving, but also, to me, a kind of fascinating uh, response to the, the, the limitations on what women could do. Um, so I, I, I really love that, and I'm thinking, I'm teaching a literature course next year, I'm thinking about trying to, it's a very long book, you know, whether I can get the, mm. the kids to read this. And so is it, is it for improvement, or for preparation for your course, or in fact just for the sheer pleasure of it? Just for sheer pleasure. I mean, there's no better re reason to read. Also, I find that if I read for pleasure and read what I want to read, it usually is feeding some deep interests that will f ultimately lead mm. to fiction. I find reading is so much like eating. Um, I, I, if I go with what I crave, that's what I'm going to most enjoy. Great. Um, anyone else you've mentioned apart from Anthony Trollope? Well, I'm reading Elizabeth Gaskell right now for the very first time, uh, which I'm sort of embarrassed to admit, but I'm reading North and South, and I absolutely love it. I mean, it's, it's a really, I mean, anthropologically, it's just so fascinating. I mean, she's literally studying the, the impact of industrialization on English life and the difficulty, the, the landed gentry and, and, and those who kind of were of that world had communicating with and understanding the world of industry, um, both aesthetically, I mean, they thought it was dirty, they, they didn't like, you know, all the noise of machines, um, and also just in terms of the kind of mentality of it, and of course there was a lot of class um, discomfort right. between those two realms. Anyway, I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, I think we're going to have to lose one of my questions, otherwise you're not going to... Uh, is, uh, do we have some questions um, in the audience? Yes, would you mind very much, because unable as we are to bring the microphone, we'd really appreciate if you can come down. Um, uh, quick one, winning the Pulitzer, thrilling, of course, but did you feel the pressure? <laughs> Um, I felt, I, I, uh, yes, I think ultimately I did. When I, when I was struggling with this book, I, it was, I felt deeply aware of how, what a bummer it would be <laughs> to write a terrible next book after winning the Pulitzer. <laughs> it just seemed like really Everyone bad. Everyone would notice. Really <laughs> bad timing to finally have a large audience and then be unable to write anymore. Um, but it did seem to me that that might be what was happening. Um, and I think also, I mean, it, I, having judged prizes and just been in the literary world a long time, I understand that really the reason you win a, a prize is that you're extremely lucky. You, you please the right group of people on the, at the right time. That's why you win. It couldn't be, it's even true if it's the Nobel. That's how you win a prize. So getting that lucky, I think, always creates a feeling of, you know, impending bad luck <laughs> to, to correct the balance. So I think I just felt nervous. Um, and, and I still do in a way. I'm kind of waiting to see where, where the bad luck will come, but hopefully it never will. Um, yes. So I was really interested in what you said about the idea about diving, because I think a lot of us would have just 
found that you know really fascinating to learn more about that world and the fact that that was really kind of instinctual and you just went with it um, because I think sometimes as readers we're a little bit guilty of reading a lot into things and of course I read that and I thought it was really great symbolism and how Anna going into this world was all about going into different worlds and what she was discovering about herself and now I think oh, I've just read too much into it. At what point when you are sort of writing in this instinctual way, do you feel like maybe other ideas and purposes come to you and it becomes quite purposeful? Or are you just happy for your readers to read whatever they like into these sorts of ideas? I'm so glad you asked that question because this is really important to say, you are definitely not reading too much into it. I think the reason that I, I the reason I rely on my instinct is that ultimately it does the best job of leading me into material that is rich and complex and, and partakes of a kind of, um, a, a sort of skein of connections and layers that I can recognize when I look at it. So it, it, is, it is absolutely fair to, to read. I mean, diving is, is a practice that is and in fact, the sea generally is both a literal thing and also inherently metaphorical. I mean, you know, metaphors of the sea, sailing, water permeate our speech. Um, you know, many of them left over from the age of sail, which is kind of wonderful that, that the prints of that are still in our language. Um, but what was thrilling about writing about Anna diving, in addition to just imagining it, and which I did with the help, by the way, of many divers who spoke to me at great length, including the first female army diver who helped me a lot and was driven out of driving by sexism, by the way. Um, so no, it, I'm, it, the reason that I'm writing instinctively is precisely to get to the material that has that kind of symbolism that dreams inherently have. And I think that we would all as readers know that there is something actually really thrilling. Thank you. Um, that, that's really thrilling when that happens, when you, when you actually see something beneath the surface of what you're reading and, and the delight of thinking, did they mean to write that or is that just mine alone? It, and, and in fact, it's the combination of both truths that makes it a wonderful experience. And, and, the, and you know, meaning it I, I may not mean it as I write it, but in the end, I am owning it and um, embracing it if I've left it in. Yes. Um, yes. Congratulations on the book, Jennifer. I read it in one sitting. I couldn't put it down. Wow, that was a long <laughs> sitting. <laughs> I also just want to say super quickly, I totally agree with Jennifer about Dexter Styles. And without wanting to plot spoil, when what happened happened, it really cost me a pang. <laughs> um, I wanted to say how delightful it was to read um, a, a book where the female protagonists um, whole way of thinking is not dependent or not in relation to, I suppose, a love interest of any kind. Um, and that was really just galvanising and, and, and fantastic to read. Was that very much in your mind when you were writing here? And I, I don't want to talk to specifics in case we're not let a plot spoil. Um, thank you for about that. This is a tricky book to talk about because there are so many twists and turns that I have to be very careful about what I say. But I, you know, it's, I, I didn't think I want to write a book in which there is no love interest, but I think that my, I think I was in, instinctively avoiding that. And, and it's interesting to me that ultimately 
it's, it's very much a book about work, which I didn't intend, but it's so clear to me now. I mean, people work in the Merchant Marine, people work at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, people work as divers, and the gangsters, we learn a lot about their work life as well. I think that, I, I guess what I must have felt instinctively was that if Anna's story really depended on a love interest of any kind, there was really, that would make it much harder to tell her story, kind of independently of that. Um, and I really didn't want to veer into the realm of sort of romance and happily ever after. I, another thing that I should mention is that one reason I, I, again, try to rely on instinct and one thing that is really not up to par about my conscious mind is that what I come up with thinking consciously tends to be familiar things. And I, I loathe a feeling of familiarity as I'm writing. I will do anything to avoid it. And in fact, as I'm moving through the plot, I will often think, gosh, I, I wonder what the hell they're gonna do. Like, how is she gonna get out of this? I, and I'll think, well, I can see this possibility, I can see this possibility. And I'll often think, yeah, I think it's probably gonna be that one. It's never any of those things. And it, ideally, it shouldn't be, because if I can sit there and think about them and see them, the reader can see them too. And the, the goal is to, in a sense, avoid all of those possibilities I can see and try to find something that I can't that feels fresh and unfamiliar. Well, this will be, um, I hope, will seem a compliment to you when I tell you that I thought The Keep was one of the weirdest books I've ever read. Oh, I'm it thrilled. It was so odd. <laughs> It was so incredibly odd. I'm all for it. <laughs> um, and Wait, we have a question here. Yes. Um, just a quick question about characters I haven't heard discussed at all during the last few days, and that is Anna's mother and her sister and how exquisitely they were drawn. And even her mother was present in her absence, I think, um, beautifully. And I, I couldn't... I had to keep rereading the scenes between Anna and her sister, and the three mm. women, in fact. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the creation of sure. her sister in particular, but the, those female characters, which you say you're less happy drawing. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, this, so Anna's sister, and this is not giving much away because we find it out right away, um, is, is very seriously disabled. She can't talk, she can't sit up. Uh, she's three years younger, and... Um, and I, when, when I was writing this first scene in, in that kind of instinctive way, um, the first thing that happens is that Anna's father apologizes for not having his wife and other daughter with him, and he says that his younger daughter was taken sick. And I found myself thinking, hmm, I think it's more than that. I didn't know what it would be. When, I, when they arrive back at the apartment and we meet, I met Lydia for the first time, and so does the reader, I, I thought, oh no, I don't, I don't know if I want to write about someone like this. I mean, it, there, it's, it, it's tricky to work with a person who can't move or talk. It's, it's a complicated thing, and I also had a sense of responsibility and not really knowing if I wanted to, if I could handle that character in a way that would be suitably respectful. And I, 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 to be frank, my first thought was, I think I need to, I think I need to get rid of her. I think this isn't going to work. But what I found was that she, had, in, in no way was she going to be flushed out of the story. She was right at the heart of it. And in fact, you know, in a certain sense is the, is the, um, the kind of 
axis around which the whole family and the whole book actually turns. So the idea of removing her was really sort of laughable. Um, but in terms of the mother, and that was a, a lovely question, and thank you, um, what, what became so interesting to me was the, the way in which this very disabled daughter essentially um, un, unhinges the family because of the very different ways that her parents react to her condition. Her mother reacts in one extreme way, which is that she gives up everything for this daughter and loves her more than she loves anyone else. She, she just gives herself over to caring for this very compromised creature and very vulnerable one. Um, and then the father can't handle it at all. So it, was, it became, although my fear was that she was a very static character, the, the reactions that she creates are actually quite dramatic. So I followed those. I'm really sorry. We are going to have to. Um, I've, I've got a thing. Which Can we do one se- last. One oh, well, last. Okay, I'll be so quick. It says session over time. You won't believe it how quick I'll be. <laughs> okay, what is it? Really quick. All right, really quick. I'm quickly. really fascinated by your the way that you can the way you write. How is it that you are able to control your conscious mind, which must be, want to control what your subconscious is doing? And is that something you discovered or had to discover when you first started writing? And how how did you manage that? Basically, I try to stay out ahead of my conscious mind. I outrun it by writing very fast, so badly that I can't read my handwriting. And so I disguise, I I basically blindfold my conscious mind and keep it mute and write until I need it, at which point I put it to work trying to turn this big mess into something readable. Wasn't that quick? That was incredibly (laughs) quick. Won't you thank Jennifer? (laughs) 